Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. It's so great to be with all of you today. For those of you joining us for the first time, welcome. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your content. And please be sure to follow us on social media at Breast Cancer Conversations. For those of you who tune in each week, it's great to have you back. I feel compelled to provide you with as much information, support, and resources as I can through our show, interviews, and my own personal experience with breast cancer. The interviews and connecting with all of you, our listeners and audience, is the fun part. But there is a lot of sweat and joy that come from the relentless hours of post-production and editing that we do each week to bring our podcast to life. My heart and soul could not be more passionate and committed each week to delivering inspiration, hope, and support. That's why I've decided to make the decision to partner with Podigy to help with the back end of editing. If you have a podcast or are thinking about starting one, I highly recommend them. They are super easy to work with, they provide great advice and customer support, and they offer our listeners 25% off your first month when you mention our podcast, Breast Cancer Conversations. We know cancer takes a village, and I'm glad to have Podigy part of our support team. April was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer when she was 35, and her daughter was 3 years old. She found her lump while breastfeeding. Today, she shares her experience with her 2 positive breast cancer her decision for a single mastectomy without reconstruction, and discovering her entrepreneurial path after her diagnosis. A lot of times we have trouble navigating life after breast cancer. We expect things to eventually get back to normal, but they rarely ever do. We yearn for community and shared experiences. It is my honor to have April Stearns on the show today. April is the founder and editor-in-chief of Wildfire Magazine. Wildfire is a magazine specifically designed with a young breast cancer survivor and fighter in mind. Their belief is that reading the stories of others diagnosed at a young age provides a much needed community and support network for today's young breast cancer survivor. Welcome to the conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me and thanks for writing for the new issue. I really, I loved what you wrote. Well, I'm April Stearns. I live in Santa Cruz, California. I am currently um, home with my daughter, my husband, and we have a border collie, a four-year-old border collie. (laughs) He's pretty excited that everyone's here, but now that everyone's working in house, he feels like it's a little, it's more boring, I think, than he anticipated having us all here. (laughs) But I, I always work from home myself. I've been actually working from home since my child was born. Um, in the midst of working from home is when I got my cancer and all that happened. So um, I've always been a writer of some form or other. I started, you know, journaling when I was a teen and trying to get all that angst out. And then later I worked for a few newspapers. And later after that, I was an editor at some of the dot coms that were cropping up in the early um, 2000s. And yeah, and now I'm the founder and editor of a magazine that's just for women, younger women with breast cancer called Wildfire Magazine. That's wonderful. And what I love about having you on the podcast today is because so many women kind of talk about what happens after your diagnosis. And, you know, it's interesting because I started the nonprofit survivingbreastcancer.org and the podcast and going back to my regular day job just didn't feel as fulfilling as 
my career trajectory was pre-cancer. I love meeting women who, you know, kind of take this idea of having cancer and how that kind of shapes the future. I was reading a little bit about on your about page, just saying, oh my gosh, we had like cancer. And then all of a sudden, who would have thought we would have made a life and a career out of our illness and diagnosis? And I was actually curious and you touched upon it a little bit. So you were a writer and journalist prior to your diagnosis? Right. I was, like I said, I worked at a couple of newspapers right out of college. And right around that same time was when the dot-com thing started really taking off in Silicon Valley. I'm very close to there. And so I at that point, got enticed and followed the money away from print journalism and more into the online space. For the first job, I was working as an editor for a business that was doing online test prep, like uh, MCAT, LSAT, SAT, that kind of stuff. And then just kind of followed it from there all over the place. Later, when I actually got cancer, I was working as a conference producer I mean, I was doing a lot of writing there, but technically I was more of a researcher, analyst, that type of thing. But writing has always been core to everything that I do just because that's who I am. And yeah, and when my daughter was born, you know, not as a paying gig, but just as a side gig, I was uh, blogging and experiencing all of that that was happening. That was kind of blowing up around that same time. She was born in 2008. So I got into blogging, I never really called my blog a mommy blog, but looking back, you know, it was a lot of that, like what kinds of stuff are we doing at home? What are other moms doing? But then when the breast cancer diagnosis, I really quickly transitioned it into more of a, okay, now we're parenting with cancer blog. And yeah, yeah. I did something similar when I was recently diagnosed and everyone actually asked, are you going to start a blog? As if like, that was the, the question of the year. Right. And, um, I was like, no, I think I'm going to be a little too tired, fatigued. I was not a writer. I mean, I did just like personal journaling and everything, but I was not like a published writer. And I decided to start a YouTube channel because I've just figured it was an easier way for me to just visually document and talk kind of off script, so to speak, into my phone, post them on YouTube, and then go from there. And it was a great way for me to keep my family and friends updated on my diagnosis, my treatments, some of the images are a little graphic after surgery and showing what it looks like to have drains. But I think it provided an opportunity to educate other people who were just Googling like what to expect after surgery or what to expect on adriamycin or any of the chemotherapies or when you lose your hair. So that ended up being the launch pad for really realizing that there was a need for this type of community. And it sounds like very similar to you, like when you're writing your stories, realizing, wait, we're young and we got diagnosed with breast cancer. Like what resources are out there? Oh, exactly. When I was diagnosed, I didn't know anyone else, you know, in my friend circle, in my work circle, even in my immediate family, I had a family history that was, you know, a few generations back. But so when I was diagnosed, it was definitely a feeling of being very alone everyone else who was receiving chemo where I was, was older. And they, I felt that they looked at me with a lot of concern and pity. I needed to let that out. I needed some kind of way to vent that feeling of being alone, but also connect with others. And in the early days, my blog wasn't necessarily about connecting with other women who were facing breast cancer because I didn't know how to find them. I didn't know how to connect with them. So like you were saying, in some ways, it was just to update family and friends on what was going on. 
I think that that really saved my husband from having to answer the same question over and over again, that he could just point them to my blog. And I do remember one time someone said like, well, yeah, I could read the blog, but I want to know what's really going on. And he was like, no, it's all there. Like she doesn't hold back. Like you said, there's (laughs) pictures of dreams and everything else there. Like it's all there. But for me, that was really important. Like I needed to have an outlet to let it out. And then later, like you're saying, like when people found it who were starting down their own, you know, diagnosis path, that was when I realized that it was really useful to other people. And not to say that I have the way to do breast cancer or something like that. Like we patchwork it all together and hopefully people read and watch and see all of the images they need to make informed decisions and ask their oncologist the questions they need to ask. For sure. Yeah. When I was diagnosed, I remember like you read the statistic one in eight and I was like, okay, so that seems like a lot. And so if I can just like Google, you know, similarly living in a metropolitan area, I'm like breast cancer, like young breast cancer, Boston, et cetera. And I thought there would just be like weekly meetups, like in the city, because why wouldn't there just be weekly meetups in the city (laughs) for young people to get together or people coming out of the woodwork to say, oh my gosh, I'm young too. Like, let me talk to you and let you know it's going to be okay. Or this is what you can expect or call me if you have questions. And it was like a ghost town. I was, I was surprised. And there are resources. It's not to say that there aren't resources, but I navigating that path, it seemed like there was even like some red tape and barriers to even trying to get access to um, support networks if it wasn't housed within your own particular like hospital and institution. So I agree. Well, and I think too, it's, I think you and I were kind of dosed, diagnosed around the same time-ish. And since then, you know, in, in putting together Wildfire, I've realized that around the time that we were diagnosed, it seemed like resources necessarily being created for younger women because it wasn't exactly understood that it was so different from being diagnosed more of the median age. And I think since then, there's been a lot more understanding that being diagnosed younger has its own particular challenges that need their own particular resources. Exactly. Yeah. So we're right on the the cutting edge of that piece. So right. I mean, we felt that need personally. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So do you mind sharing a little bit about how you found out you had cancer? You said there was a little bit of family history, but not it was generations back. Yeah. So my um, grandmother on my dad's side had breast cancer. And I unfortunately don't know how old she was when she was first diagnosed. But my recollection is that she was on the somewhat younger side, maybe in her 50s when she was diagnosed. But I was quite young then. What I remember most about her was that when I was 18, she had a metastatic recurrence and she passed away. And so that kind of then shuttled me into adulthood. And I still didn't feel that I knew very much about breast cancer. But at that point, I obviously knew that it had taken her breasts and that it had ultimately taken her life. And so for me, that kind of lodged this idea in the back of my head that I don't want to say probably, but I felt that I might have that in my future for whatever reason. Although every time I went to the doctor and they asked about family history of breast cancer, immediately when I said paternal, they dismissed it. It wasn't concerning to anyone at that point. So then fast forward when I was, um, when I had my daughter, I was actually breastfeeding her one night when I felt the lump in my breast. 
And for me, it had been one of those things where it wasn't there yesterday. And now all of a sudden, it's here. What in the world is this thing? And I remember after I put her to sleep that night, I went and asked my husband, you know, can you feel this? Does this feel like, what is this? And I, I'll never forget the blood draining from his face. And he, he just looked at me and he said, yeah, what is that? So then like so many younger women who were also postpartum, I faced a little bit of the challenges of getting diagnosed in that it was assumed to be a milk duct, like a a clogged milk duct. But fortunately, I had a really smart, proactive gynecologist who helped get me into imaging. It took, I would say, like three weeks to get my first mammogram, which was frustrating. But eventually when I got it, I was immediately diagnosed. I had stage three HER2 positive um, breast cancer. That little lump that I felt was um, measured at seven centimeters. It was actually enormous. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, oh my gosh. Yeah. And my my oncologist did tell me he's like, I I think that probably a month ago this wasn't here. You know, it's it's a her two positive is a very fast growing aggressive cancer. But he said also it can be also fast killing if we can target it properly. So I did the route of doing chemo first and then my surgery. But yeah, the very first blog post that I wrote about cancer was actually when I was waiting for the results of my biopsy. It kind of described how that had gone. And actually, a few women in my life immediately wrote back with their biopsy stories. And I realized that there are more of us having, or at that time, more women having scares, whether it actually ends up being breast cancer or not, but more women having scares than I had ever realized. It just wasn't on my radar until I was the one in the gown waiting for the results. Right, exactly. And when you say like more women having scares, do you mean like thinking that there's a lump and they need to advocate to get a biopsy or over testing? Because that could be the other side is that we have been doing so many biopsies coming back negative, but you still have that scare period of waiting and that anxiety of waiting for the results. I, yes, absolutely. I think it's both. I think for me, though, at that point, I realized there was more women, younger women who were, hadn't yet reached the age of more regular mammograms who were feeling their breasts and discovering lumps and bumps and things like that. And so being in that limbo state of, is it a clogged milk duct? Is it a fatty cell? Like, what is this? Sure. No, and I, you know, unfortunately here this time and time again, and I'm sure you do too, and um, with your own story that immediately no one wants to assume it's cancer. So they'll navigate the path of, well, you're breastfeeding or it could be the clogged milk duct or so many other things. Um, you know, you just naturally have lumpy breast or other things around that. Um, right, right. So the first inclination isn't, oh my gosh, it's breast cancer. Let's get you into imaging right away. Especially, you know, if there is no family history or a lot of us too didn't even know family history existed until, which was my experience until I found out I came back um, positive with, stage two breast cancer and told my mom. And then all of a sudden I got like this whole laundry list of like ailments on her side of the family that I'm like, oh, that would have been nice to know like years ago to tell my primary care. But, you know, it's generations and, you know, I think culture plays a big part into talking about diagnosis and what, what happened with your great aunts and uncles and all of that. So Right. Well, and it's interesting because I think that we maybe are part of a change and a shift away from the stigma of illness and cancer and things like that. And I know personally, I've been just an open book about my own story, which means by default that my daughter is very aware of my story. I haven't talked to her yet about what that might mean for her as far as screening goes and things like that. 
I mean, she'll never not know that she has a family history, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Did you go through with um, genetics testing at all after you found out your diagnosis? I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is interesting because even though my grandmother had breast cancer and then like you, that kind of then um, became this little bit of a snowball of realizing that there was a lot more breast cancer on her side going back. And probably the only reason I wasn't aware of it more immediately was that she only had sons and none of them had breast cancer, but she had sisters who had breast cancer and they had daughters who had breast cancer. So when I was diagnosed, my oncologist did definitely want me to do all the genetic testing, but so far to date, it's all come back negative for what they currently have tests for. Sure. I've just been advised. There's probably some genetic link there. We just don't know what it is yet. Um, my dad did pass away from pancreatic cancer and there can be a link there on the BRCA gene. But again, we tested negative for that. Yeah. I think genetics is playing a huge role now. Also, we did um, a research study this past January and February specifically on genetics and the ethical considerations that women with breast cancer are navigating. You know, I think a lot of times it's wonderful that our doctors are encouraging us to get tested but really taking a psychological perspective of, are we prepared to know what those results are? And once we know those results, we can't unknow those results. And so just making sure there's enough counseling around what that opportunity actually means. So. Oh, definitely. Well, it's interesting because this, because my dad died of pancreatic cancer, my brothers and I now have a choice of whether we want to do regular screenings for that. And, um, and it does open up some of those really personal questions that, that are, you know, do I want to know would it change how I live my life? Like personally for me, I've decided on that one that because the outcomes aren't so different, whether you, um, because it's a very hard cancer to find and diagnose because the outcomes aren't so different. I've just decided I don't really always want to live with that anxiety that we already face with breast cancer. So yeah, but it's so personal and yeah, it's a little bit like trying to have a, 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 what do they say, a crystal ball, you know, and think that maybe that will show you your future, but it brings a lot of other uncertainty. I, I know, I know. And I caution my friends too, who think it's so great to like go over the counter and get like the 23andMe genetics test and all of the health side ones that Ancestry now are offering. And I'm like, oh gosh, wait, like, are you sure you want to know? I know it is a Pandora's box and it's so amazing that it's so readily available. But yeah, I think that it, you, you do need some kind of counseling around it to understand what, what you learn. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were stage three. Do you mind going into a little bit more in depth about what stage three is and to educate our listeners about how, you, how that got classified for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I was diagnosed stage three based on the size of the tumor. Like I said, it was seven centimeters and the fact that there was lymph node involvement. So when I had my mastectomy, I opted for a unilateral mastectomy. So I had my left breast removed only and kept my right breast. And I also opted against reconstruction. So I am um, a flat uni, but at that time also they removed 13 lymph nodes. And I can't remember how many of them were positive at this point, but a fair number of them were positive. So yeah, so I did the chemo because of it being um, HER2 positive and not positive for estrogen, progesterone. I didn't then have to do any hormone therapy after the fact. So at that time, I did Herceptin only. We didn't have Progetta yet, and there's some others now for her too. I did Herceptin for 13 months and then was released into the wider world. And so I've been out of treatment now for seven years. 
Wow. Congratulations. That's, Thank you. That's awesome. Wow. That's amazing. So I guess they classify stage two into two different categories, A and B. And I fall on the B side because I also had lymph node involvement. And I believe it was three lymph nodes that tested positive. And for me, I think if it was like four or above, there's some sort of like magic number or depending on how many lymph nodes they they test positive. And it's frightening to see how quickly and aggressive these breast cancers can be. As you mentioned, one day there was a lump and the week before there wasn't anything. Same with women who are going to get mammographies like once a year, if they're even going once a year and their test can come back completely clear. And then all of a sudden, six months later, they finally have a lump. So it's still baffling to me. I still am trying to make sense of how quickly breast cancer can spread in the body and go into the lymphatic system. And I think it's wonderful that, you know, your seven years with no recurrence or evidence of disease as you continue to get tested. So that's, that's wonderful. I feel like our camps are, have fallen into at least on breast cancer conversations, speaking with women who are either what I call like triple positive and are taking the hormonal therapies or they're HER2 positive or they're triple negative. But you fall into this category of being HER2 positive and not hormonal driven. So that's interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you've learned from that? Well, it's interesting because even though I haven't had to take any of the hormone therapies to quiet down all the hormones naturally in my body, what for me personally happened was that chemo put me into a medical menopause anyway. And so I think my story might be different had everything woken up again, because I, at the time of being diagnosed, I had wanted to have a second child. And so I, at that point, kind of thought that might be more my trajectory. And in fact, that's why I kept one of my breasts, because I had hoped to then go on, go back to breastfeeding and kind of just close the cancer chapter almost the way it had opened for me. So my doctor had advised me that HER2 often, not always, but often is the one of the ones that recurs more in those first five years. So he had said, you know, if everything looks good after say three years, then maybe you can try to have another child. So I didn't really worry about the fact that my period wasn't coming back for a while. But then as I neared that three-year mark and it wasn't there... And then I thought, okay, well, we'll go another five years. But I was 35 when I was diagnosed. So I was definitely hearing that clock ticking in the background too. But for me, it never returned. I've been in in menopause ever since. Or I guess technically I'm now in menopause because I think they say you have to have 12 months without an actual period to be officially. So I was perimenopause for a long time, I would have like a period at six months and then another one, like maybe three weeks later. And then another one that wouldn't come till nine months later. Like it was a very shifting thing. And so I went through all the hot flashes and all of the stuff that the women who are on the the AIs and the hormone therapies go through all the weight gain, all that difficulty. Only mine was based on the, just being thrust straight into menopause. Hmm. So it's hard for me to really say how it, it was different with just the HER2 since my body just mimicked it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And I think something that we don't talk a lot about is I'm now super open about it as well, being like thrusted into this medical menopause journey. And our stories are s- similar. I also started off with the chemotherapy first to try and be as aggressive as possible to shrink the size of the tumor before the surgery. And I was on Herceptin. And I remember my doctor coming out telling me, we might want to start pairing this with Progetta because studies were just starting to come out around like 2016, 17, 18, 
showing that this combination of Herceptin and Progetta had a positive impact on her two um, cancers. So I felt like I was just on a little bit of everything. I was also on the like ACT treatment, the adriamycin, cytoxin, and taxol. Uh-huh. Um, I did that one others. as well. Did yep. you? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I ended up taking an oral chemotherapy after everything was done. I was on capsidabine or I think it also goes by Zalota just to, again, make sure that any residual pieces of cancer that were floating out there because it was in the lymph nodes just got zapped. So it was, I don't know, I feel like I've been on a lot of drugs for a long time. And now I'm on an aromatase inhibitor I'm on letrozole plus um, a Lupron shot to suppress the ovaries. But I'm curious, actually, you bring up a good point. I almost want to go to my doctor and ask, like, if the chemotherapy is thrusting me into menopause, like, is Lupron still necessary? Or, you know, we're just taking all these extra precautions, which I'm, I'm totally fine with. I don't want it coming back. Trust me. But, you know, right. it's, 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 sure. but it is interesting. Yeah. Like, what is your, what is your body doing underneath all of the drugs? Like, it's hard to know. And I think we become such almost professional patients, you know, it's, yeah. it's just, it's a medical body that it also is a scary endeavor to maybe see what your body would do or wouldn't do without. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And I'm still in that. I don't know. I joke with like my girlfriends, like the weight gain is just, this is who I am now. Like, this is what I used to do. And trying to embrace it as much as possible. But I do have to say this quarantine time has been really great. I've been walking more and exercising more just because there's so much anxiety and uncertainty that it's like the perfect stress relief. So I am hopeful that cooking healthy dinners at home, not leaving the house and walking more is going to have some positive results in these next couple of months. Oh yeah, absolutely. I know I hear from a lot of women that the weight gain and all of that, um, there's so many things that come after the breast cancer diagnosis that a lot of people don't really talk about openly and definitely the shift in how your body handles all of those things. I know for me personally, that was a really, really hard one. And then I hear from more and more women that that's, that's a big issue for them. But it's like, who do you talk to about that? Because it's not really your oncologist realm, you know, and um, yeah, I think there's a lot of things that leave us a little bit in a gray area of who to talk to. And that's why we have to share our stories. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm curious to hear more about your decision to not do reconstruction. Oh, sure. Yeah. So like I said, at the time, I was hoping to have another child. I had a small child at home. So one of the main things for me was not wanting to have any additional surgeries. If I could get away with less, that was my goal. Secondly, they let me know that if I were to do um, reconstruction on the left side, they would probably need to cut the right side to make the two sides match. And I was really adverse to cutting the healthy breast because actually breast cancer was like my first big illness. It was like, it brought my first surgery, all of that stuff was brand new to me. So to me, the idea of cutting a healthy breast really was scary to me and I didn't want to do it. And I was really hoping to breastfeed another child. So I kind of approached my mastectomy as like a in and out kind of procedure. I just wanted it done as quickly as possible. I um, also had heard of some women who were having multiple surgeries around implant surgery, like, you know, fixes or complications or even just exchange surgeries. And that to me just seemed like a lot. And I, I was really wanting my daughter to feel a sense of normality. 
I, I was buying into that idea that my life could go back to normal. And so I just was like, okay, let's fast track this. Um, I'll just do the one mastectomy and then go on. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, it's all so much more complicated than that. But for me, in terms of the mastectomy surgery, that is what I got. I had a really good result. It's perfectly flat. I wore a prosthetic for several years and have since decided not to any longer. And while I wasn't able to breastfeed my daughter or another child rather, I'm glad that I have my natural breast. Yeah, no, that's, that's wonderful. I remember when I was going through that decision, um, I think I was waiting to come back the results of the, um, the BRCA test and the genetic testing that I was doing. Because my doctor was like, okay, we'll get this test. If it comes back BRCA positive, you're going to have to need a double mastectomy. If it comes back negative, you might be a candidate for breast conserving surgery and um, a lumpectomy with some minor reconstruction to get the two sides to match. So I just remember every single day doing as much research as I can, looking at pictures, learning about what the expanders were, what that process was like to get expanders placed in, discovering how many additional surgeries you might need, which I think is not necessarily always talked about at the time of surgery when you're choosing and the potential for complications. So I was like all over the board. So some days I was very comfortable, like, all right, we can do implants or no, if I need a double mastectomy, I'm just going flat. My doctor was also telling me about taking tissue from behind my like shoulder blade, the Oh, the laborious, yeah, or, yeah, one of the one of the flaps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and at the time, prior to my diagnosis, I was incredibly active, practiced yoga very regularly, was you know very fit, and I was horrified that this surgery would actually prevent me from doing like the chaturanga push ups, or I would never be able to do a pull up again, or push ups, or you know anything that really re- required your upper body strength. So at that point, I was like you know, we're definitely going flat and I don't want foreign objects in my body. Like I'm trying to be like healthy and natural and it it just scared me. So, you know, I think there's a lot of emotion that goes into some of those decisions. And I'm always curious to see, you know, at the end of the day, when you look in the mirror, are you happy with your choice? And that's what eventually got me to just feel confident and comfortable with the directions we were going. So can I ask, did you end up doing the double or what did you end up doing? Yeah, great question. So I ended up doing what I call, I'm sure there's a technical name for it, but I call it a double lumpectomy. So they did a lumpectomy on the cancerous side and then a reduction on the other healthy side. Mm -hmm. And I was able to um, do like the nipple sparing surgery as well, based on where the cancer was. It was high enough that they were able to conserve like the, the nipple and areola area. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I recently learned that there's a lot of women who don't realize that they can have a reduction on the the healthy side, for lack of a better word, because I do hear now from women who have thought about doing the unilateral mastectomy, but they're like, I'm a double D or, you know, how is it going to be with this really large breast and uh, insurance will cover a reduction on the healthy side. Oh, that's good to know. I don't know if you can go back for it, but if you do it all in one Yes. You know, which is what I ended up doing as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I do have an option if I wanted to, and I'm not choosing this at this time, but if I wanted to do another surgery after having the surgery, I had about a month, six, five to six weeks of radiation. And my radiation oncologist informed me that over the next 12 months after radiation ends, your breast can still shrink and change and, and morph and settle with the new tissue. And so that side has actually decreased and gotten smaller. So I do feel a little bit uneven, but at the end of the day, my boyfriend just reminds me like, 
I see it. No one else really sees it. It's totally fine. And it's not necessarily at this time worth it for me to go back in and have another surgery. I mean, that's the thing, right? It's like so personal. You might decide years from now that you want to change it. And that's totally your prerogative. Like we all have to figure out how to live this life after treatment and after diagnosis, however we want. And I was really surprised when I stopped wearing my prosthetic because I just kind of assumed I would wear it forever. But then I shifted and I'm not that same person who needed it then. And it's funny too, once I stopped wearing it, I didn't notice that every time I left my house, the whole world was staring at my chest either. So I think I was way more focused on it than, you know, anyone else. So I know I still have like bouts of like panic when I go into dressing rooms or trying to find like a dress or different outfits. But at the end of the day, it's, it's more in my head and more me personally than the external. So definitely working through that. It it does complicate some things as far as dressing goes a little bit for me. I just um, went to, it feels like a million years ago because it was before quarantine, but I went to an award ceremony and I needed to wear a fancy dress and I have a strapless dress in my closet from way back. And I, I was like, I don't know, maybe it's tight enough. It would work. Okay. But it, it totally can't work with one dress (laughs) at all. So So you mentioned that you had your lymph nodes removed. Do, have you had any side effects with regards to like lymphedema or anything in that side? Yeah. So I haven't had um, full on lymphedema, fortunately, but it is something that I manage uh, all the time. So for the first several years, I didn't notice any swelling or discomfort at all. Right after I had my surgery, I was given a referral to a lymphedema nurse, I'm trying to think of what her actual title was, but she worked in the field of lymphedema and she taught me about massage and also hooked me up with a big pump and jacket massage uh, contraption. And so for the first few years, I did that a lot. You know, I would just get comfy in bed and let this thing massage. It was, it was, you know, massaging up my arm and then into my, um, the lymph nodes into my back and my chest. I noticed a lot more swelling in my back than I ever did in my arm. So that was helpful. It just was kind of a tightness. I haven't actually been using it lately because I have not noticed it so much, but I'll get like an ache in my arm. And so for me personally, what works best is I have a little trampoline, a little... I jog on that every day. I did some research and they say for lymphatic massage, swimming and trampoline are really, uh, really good because of that pressure on the cells. And then when you're trampoline, you also get this anti-gravity kind of everything releases. And then as you come back down, the gravity squeezes again. So it's this opening and closing. And so for me, I notice if my arm is feeling a little tight or achy, I'll just jog on that for 20 minutes and then I don't feel it anymore. And it's, it's been kind of amazing. That sounds really amazing. How do you jog on a trampoline? So it's a little rebounder and it's pretty tight. You, I can adjust the tightness of the, I don't even know what to call the base of it, but you know, the bouncy part, I can adjust it to be tighter or looser. So I have, think I have it kind of at the, the looser point right now. It's, so when I jog on it, it's not as if it's like going all the way to the floor, but it's got a lot of give to it. And then I just jog in place or hop around, but it's not like you're big, like I'm not doing backflips on it. You know, it's just a little trampoline in my living room. It's funny. I remember my mom having one probably from the Jane Fonda days, you know, and doing exercise on it, but hers was so noisy. I'm <laughs> this one that I have is completely silent. So I can just crank up some music on my iPod and just 
dog and my family doesn't even oh, that know sounds, I'm doing it. That's not so fun. I'm going to look for that. Um, I suffer from lymphedema. I think it's still mild, but we're, again, we're being very aggressive with it because I don't want it to blow up. What I should be doing every night is wrapping my arm. My lymphedema um, massage therapist was teaching me all these wrapping techniques. But in all honesty, it's something I do when I notice that there's a flare up, use the wrapping techniques and massage techniques and manage that so it can go down. But yeah. It's- yeah. Well, and I have a, um, I have a sleeve and I do definitely wear it when I go to altitude. Um, like here, we like to go to Lake Tahoe for um, vacation. So if I'm going from sea level where I live up the mountain, I wear it, but I don't wear it once I'm there just for the sudden changes and same with flying. I wear it when I for takeoffs and landings and all of that. And I do find it helps. I will say though, for me, I think one of the big things that helped was I lost some weight. And I think that getting some inflammation under control seemed to help with the buildup of fluid in my back too. That's a really good point. Also the the inflammation piece. Yeah. Our bodies are so complicated. (laughs) Knowing like how we're responding to all these drugs and changes and chemical changes. So Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know it's always shifting and changing and it's hard to see that one thing is connected to another, but yeah, but I do recommend the trampolining. It's really fun. Oh no, I'm smiling over here. Like I'm definitely going (laughs) to look it up after this phone call and and order one for sure. It'll be like something, I'll wash it down when it comes in from the quarantine and like (laughs) give me something to do for these next couple of weeks. Excellent. Well, I'm so glad we got to hear a little bit of your survivor story and everything and your decisions for surgery and treatment plans. To shift to your profession now in the magazine, I don't really have like a specific question. I'm just such an awe. You're in what, your fifth year of producing Wildfire? I am. Yes. Congratulations. Very, very beginning of of year five. Yeah. That's awesome. And how did you go from like mommy blog and mommy blog with cancer to actually you know, running your own business and this amazing magazine? Yeah. So I would say it was really born of a deep need to find others, really. So as I said, I didn't know anyone in my community, whether my personal community or my my living community at large, who was younger with breast cancer. But I saw the same statistics as you, you know, the one in eight, you know, having breast cancer. And then I saw that there were 12,000-ish young women being diagnosed every year with breast cancer. And so I thought like, well, where are all these women? Because for me, I really wanted to see the images, hear the stories of how other people were making a life after diagnosis. I, for me, the easier part was when I was actually in treatment because I had an oncologist who just laid out a plan. I'm pretty good at following directions. I just you know, walked the path. I just did the work. Sure. And so it was afterward when... Um, when I thought everything would just go back to normal, that I found that I was really struggling. I didn't even know that chemo brain was a thing until I was in it, you know, things like that, that I just thought, how are other people doing this? How, how are they going to work? Or even making sense of the fact that the work I was doing before cancer doesn't feel as fulfilling anymore after cancer. So I had a lot of questions like that, but I definitely tried my hardest to just do what I was doing before, after I, I mean, I, I kind of beat my head against that brick wall for about two years where I just tried to make everything what it was before. It was really my dad being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer that was the big shift in my life. His diagnosis came almost to the day, two years after my diagnosis. And yeah, he asked me at that point if there was any way that I could become his caregiver. 
And he lived about 30 minutes from me. My mom had already passed away. My brothers have moved away. So at that point, I decided, yeah, you know, I want to do this for you. And I also am not feeling super, you know, fulfilled in my current work anymore. And I was kind of at this place where I needed to figure out what, what I was doing next anyway. So unfortunately, he was diagnosed at stage four. So he only had about six months to live. And he went through chemo. He did all of the stuff that, that we do when we are diagnosed with cancer. Breast cancer, pancreatic cancer are very different. But it felt really good for me to be able to apply some of the knowledge I had gained through my own experience to his. So for example, I was cooking him a lot of foods that I knew would be um, palatable when he, he was having mouth sores or the different taste things that happened during chemo. I was driving him. I took over all the management of you know liaisoning between insurance and um, nurse navigators and all that kind of stuff. And it just felt so good, like I said, to be like, well, this was helpful to me. And so now I can pay it back by helping him. And so after he passed away, I realized I really wanted to stay in cancer somehow and help others. Because my background is in writing, and I was also really seeking to find others like me, I just remember thinking like, I wish there was a magazine that I could see these stories and read these, you know, stories of these women. But there was nothing. I mean, I remember looking around at my you know, when I was in the oncology centers, I would look at the magazines and they always had older women on them. They were all different cancer types. Like I really wanted something specific for younger women with breast cancer. You know, there's that old adage, if you aren't finding the resource you need, then maybe you need to be the one to make it. And so that's what I did. It started off as a blog because that was kind of where my experience was, but I knew that I wanted it to be Released as a package, I knew that I wanted all the stories to be on a particular theme related to survivorship. And so that's kind of how it got started. The very first issue launched on my birthday, which coincided with my cancer diagnosis. And it was kind of my like take back my life, you know, kind of moment. I called the so the magazine's called Wildfire. That very first issue was called Phoenix. And it was like, you know, I'm still here. I'm gonna figure out what this is. But the one thing is I never wanted to be the expert. I didn't want to be the one who was telling others how to live their post-cancer diagnosis life. I wanted to just make a platform for others to share theirs. Yes. So from day one, that's what it's been. And now I, I have published over 500 stories. Like I said, it's going into its fifth year. Every issue now is in print and in digital. That was a huge dream of mine to go to print. But definitely took, you know, evolution and learning and all kinds of things. I was not an entrepreneur before. I certainly wasn't a magazine publisher before. So it's just been a learning curve. And fortunately, I enjoy the challenge and enjoy learning how to do new things. But yeah, so it's mostly just me. I um, do have a small team of contractors who help me around the actual launching. Um, I I have a designer who lives in Switzerland, Hannah. She's amazing. She's also a younger breast cancer survivor and years ago reached out to me and said, you know, if you ever want to like change this and make this from a blog into something that looks more like a digital magazine, I can help with that. Awesome. So yeah. So eventually I said, yes, please, let's figure out how to do this. And then from there, we were able to go into print. And then I have a copy editor who lives in Sweden and she comes on and kind of gives fresh eyes to everything at, you know, right before we go live. But 
for the most part, I wear all the hats in my business and it's always a circus, but it's always really fun. Excellent. Yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Well, this has been such a pleasure. If someone is interested in finding more out about subscribing to your magazine or getting more information, um, how can they find you? Well, the main place to go would be my website. That's wildfirecommunity.org. But I'm also on Instagram. There it's wildfire underscore BC underscore magazine. And then wildfire community on Facebook as well. So they can find me on the socials. And um, But the main place I would say is just go to the website. You can see all the archives there, all of the people who've contributed. Like you, you're in the brand new issue. This <laughs> so exciting. Issue. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll link to your website and everything too in our show notes when this uh, episode releases so people know exactly where to go. Excellent. So, yeah. April, this has been so much fun chatting with you. I really appreciate you taking the time this morning. And I love how we're across the country from like the East Coast and West Coast, just chatting about breast cancer because that's what we do on Sunday mornings. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me, yeah, Laura. I no really problem. appreciate it. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in and listening to today's episode. We release episodes each week, typically on Mondays. If you have a topic idea or would like to be a guest on our show, please contact me at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. We love hearing from you. Please remember that the content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in our podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our workplaces. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. Until next time, keep on thriving.